Better agriculture is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woi, Wurrung and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation and edited on the lands of the Ghana people. We pay our respects to all Elders past and present. You're listening to a Bayer podcast. Better Agriculture takes listeners behind the scenes of the world's largest agricultural research and development program. Find out what's new and next in Australian agriculture with the Bayer Crop Science team. We keep thinking we're about to hit it and we never seem to. And I understand there's more varieties coming out again soon that are better again. So you never say never in terms of about just how far the crop might be able to expand. It's probably widely seen as the highest quality cotton in the world. It's pretty exciting, actually. I mean, we're we're in the early days of launching ExtendFlex cotton system at the moment. And there'll be 50,000 hectares grown predominantly in the, in the northern New South Wales and southern Queensland regions this year. We've now, because of that technology, reduced our pesticide use in the environment by 95%. Hello and welcome to the Better Agriculture podcast. I'm Ed Gannon. In this episode, we're looking at the Australian cotton industry, how it's travelling, where it's heading and what innovations we're seeing in the industry. Joining me today is Ben Turner, Territory Business Manager for Northern Australia with Bayer Crop Science and Ben's based at Atherton Tablelands in Queensland. Welcome, Ben. Good morning, Ed. We're also joined by Andrew Parks from Customised Farm Management, who farms cotton all over the place and based in Moree in New South Wales. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Ed. Good to be here. Ben, I'll, I'll turn to you first. Can you give us a bit of a, a bit of a rundown on the Australian cotton industry at the moment? Yes, yeah, certainly. The cotton industry in Australia this previous season reached around 580,000 hectares of production. The traditional areas are prominently about 60% New South Wales, 30% Southern Queensland. The industry itself employs around 12,000 people nationwide, um, contributes around $3 billion dollars GDP at the current hectares. Predominantly, the cotton industry is around about 90% family owned and operated throughout Australia. It's probably widely seen as um, the highest quality cotton in the world. Whilst we have a relatively small worldwide market share, the quality through cultural practices, technology and farming, and good climate for cotton contributes to a very highly desirable product on the worldwide market. So, so what does our cotton mainly go to? Well, all the cotton in Australia is, is exported in 500 US pound bales at 227 kilos in metric. Um, it all goes to mills in Asia, throughout Southeast Asia predominantly, where it's spun into um, garments and, and goes on from there. So you say we're, quality-wise we're good, we're exceptional, but size-wise we're not that big. And so our thing is quality, not quantity. That's where we get our our markets from absolutely um i, I think uh, andrew can probably talk to this uh, um with some of the initiatives that, that do, do go on we have some industry programs um such as the better cotton initiative and the best management plan which help that um, as well as some of the interesting takes on carbon within the the system but you know predominantly we we have an abundance of sunlight good water and um you know, cotton responds to that by having very strong quality measures of, of micronarian staple and colour 
which which is really what the the, the mills are, are seeking. Andrew, I'll, I'll move to you. You've got an interesting story with your operation. Can you tell us about customised farm management, what you do and, and whereabouts you are? Yeah, sure, Ed. Um, as, as mentioned earlier, we're based in, in Moree. We have offices in Moree and Griffith in New South Wales. We were incorporated in 2008, and since that point we have brought on various clients, um, some institutional, um, some high net worth individuals, um, you know, a variety of clients from both domestically and, and, and international that have effectively invested into agriculture. Um, we've helped source the assets that they've purchased and then we help manage those assets uh, over time. And that's taken us on a bit of a journey across a, a number of geographies. We currently have about 17 farms under management um, and approximately $750 million worth of value. Uh, and those assets, uh, as I said, are in New South Wales, Queensland, uh, and also now in Northern, Northern Territory. So how big is the cotton industry in the Northern Territory? Is it, is it just a sort of in its infancy at the moment? Yeah, very much in its infancy. Um, I believe um, some of the guys around us now are the oldest cotton farmers up there are now effectively four years old um, in the dry land sense in particular. There's been an attempt to grow cotton in Kununurra, Western Australia, under irrigation for some period of time. And when the value of cotton is, is high, um, more is grown there. But there's been a distinct lack of infrastructure to support the, the, uh, the industry up there, which has reduced, I guess, the opportunity to expand. That infrastructure is now going in place. There's a cotton gin just north of Catherine, almost finished. Uh, and there's another cotton gin to be built in Kununurra which is enabling the expansion of, of cotton to be grown profitably when um, prices aren't quite as good as what they are now and the margin is not eaten up by the transportation required to bring all of that cotton back to the east, east coast. So your move into a Northern Territory, one of the big things at the moment is the cost of farmland all around Australia. How does that stack up in NT compared to you know, traditional growing areas? And that's exactly what took us there, Ed. Um, our investors that have focused in the sort of eastern seaboard traditional farming regions have been the beneficiaries of quite enormous capital uh, growth, both their land and water assets over the course of the last five years in particular. But, but what's that that's done from an investor's perspective is lower the returns on the value of the asset. And that's really what they're in this for. Um, it's not a it's not a social thing or a lifestyle thing. They're looking for an investment. So, with the value of those assets increasing to the degree they have, the return on on those assets is not as high. That's taken us on a bit of a journey to Northern Australia in in general, where um, those land and water assets are anywhere between a half and uh, a quarter the cost of what they are in. Uh, the regions that we're more traditionally growing cotton in, particularly from a dry land perspective. But the very early days, as I said, the first three, four years of production up there, some extraordinary yield results have occurred, um, some of them variable, uh, which is probably understandable in a new region, but some of them extraordinary. Um, you know, a six, seven bars to the hectare of cotton on a dry land basis is exceptional. Yes, and so what's the average? What would you expect? Uh, look, we've got a client that owns country at North Star, and, and that's in a region basically called the Golden Triangle. Um, it's called that for a reason. It's probably in the top three dry land growing regions for cotton production in Australia. 
the long-term average of cotton production there on a dry land basis is 3.7 bales to the hectare. Um, the value of that land is north of $10,000 per hectare. So when it's half that in the Northern Territory and the yields are where they are already on a, on a very um, infancy basis, um, the future looks pretty strong. Yeah, you can see why why you would be looking up there and, and investors would be looking up there if you're doubling production on half the cost, so to speak. Yeah, it brings its challenges, though. Yeah, I could, I could well imagine. I'll stick with you, Andrew. Just tell us about how cotton growing has changed in the last, say, decade or so. What, what, what are the major things that you've seen in practices and, and also, to just the philosophy area behind cotton growing? Yeah, so just touching back for a second on, on something that Ben mentioned, mentioned earlier in that um, everything in Australia is exported, all of our cotton is exported. It sort of removes competition amongst ourselves in a way. Um, we're not competing for a market. It's it's all we're able to sell cotton on a daily basis three years ahead. So it sort of removes this competition that's often there in other commodity types in, in Australia. Because of that, they're a very, very collaborative industry. Through that collaboration and the fact that pretty well every farmer is a researcher as well, and the doors being opened or the gates being opened to everybody's farm, the industry has transformed incredibly from when I first became involved in, in the early 1990s to where it is today. And some of those movements forward, you know, not only include, include incredible yield advances, you know, when I first turned up in Moree, six bales to the hectare was probably a good result. There's guys getting 15 and 16 bales in these regions quite regularly these days. The efficiency side of things, water in particular, the focus applied to that, certainly during our El Nino drought period issues, through which you learn a lot, uh, have been incredible. We've almost doubled our water use efficiency um, since we first started in the industry. Um, even now, um, in, in the more recent times, much more focus on sustainability and carbon. The industry is moving down those pathways incredibly quickly. And in fact, I guess something that we've learned about sustainability now that it's such a catch cry and such a, a focus of everybody's is that when we actually delve into what sustainability really is, we actually see that this industry's been doing a lot of the things that you know people talk about uh, when they try to define sustainability or regenerative ag. Large parts of those had been done by this industry for a long period of time. As I said, what is sufficiency? Nitrogen use efficiency, capture of carbon in the in the soils, minimum tilt, GPS steering systems that are two centimetre accurate. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's just it's normal. It, it, it's it's uh, everyday um, approach that every farmer or every cotton farmer uses. So it's sort of what we sort of need to do. I think is tell that story a little bit better and uh, and and let's let's hope your podcast heads you know the first step towards some of that. Yeah, let's hope so. So, Ben, what have you seen in the last sort of decade or so in the industry, the sorts of changes that you've witnessed? Well, I entered the industry in, in 2013 and actually sort of a bit of a personal story. I, I came to Australia on a business visa to come and work for a cotton grower. Um, you know, in, in the last 10 years from a um, technology standpoint, Ingard Cotton, which had the first transgenic insecticidal trait in it, was in 1996. which um, And then since there... There's been two evolutions of that that trait where we are now at Olgard 3, which came out in 2016, which is after I, 
first came and started working under the Bolgard II system. What that's done is that's done a few things. It, it's it's allowed better profit margins for the growers because the um, the efficacy of the insecticide is is greater there, and the resistance management plan is around that has been able to change to reduce our refuges and things like that, which are obviously a cost to the grower. But not only that, it, it, it's allowed expansion into non-traditional areas of cotton growing, such as Northern Australia, where, as Andrew alluded to earlier in Kununurra, cotton had been tried and, and, and hadn't worked out largely because of the pest pressure was too much to grow the crop under those circumstances at the time. So that's allowed growers to, um, first of all, spread their climatic risk, as in, you know, being a geographically diverse country as Australia is, uh, allowing to take advantages of where where one part might be dry, another another part might be having adequate rainfall, but also allow new opportunities for new growers and, and enterprises to you know, establish cotton as part of their enterprise. And, and, and the benefits that can bring, um, you know, not only to the cotton industry, but if you look at the pastoral industry in Northern Australia, one of the issues they face is their distance to reliable protein. Um, cotton can bring that um, to that system and and potentially allow for greater advances in that industry as well. So it's very much a good news story all around, and it's brought on by the, the constant innovation and an advancement and pushing you know technological advances both culturally and scientifically, which have got us to this point. If I can just jump in there and just add to the, to what Ben's saying in terms of the the genetic modification that that has developed um, over the course of the last twenty years or so here, it's it's one of the most extraordinary outcomes I've ever seen in in any form of agriculture, where we we've now because of that technology reduced our pesticide use in the environment by ninety five percent. The protein that is produced within the plant today is a naturally occurring protein. So we've reduced 95% of synthetic insecticide use and replaced that with a naturally occurring protein that the plant is able to produce internally. The protein is so natural, it's registered for use in organic cotton. So the plant produces that itself. Because of that, it's so efficacious that we don't have, we still have concerns about resistance because it is natural and therefore Mother Nature has a, a defensive mechanism against wiping those insects out through resistance. And we have a brilliant resistance management plan supported by a raft of scientists within Australia to help defend all of that. And, and combine into that the introduction of um, integrated pest management as well, which has been occurring now for 20 or 30 years within the industry. Like every cotton grower has its own agronomist who comes and tends to that crop twice a week. Extraordinary to us that we go into some permanent crops worth, you know, forty, fifty thousand, hundred thousand dollars per hectare in value. And they don't receive the same attention in terms of agronomic focus that, that we receive in cotton. All of that combined together has made some extraordinary advances that again um, are not widely known and and I think, you know, should be. And that was a point I was going to get to is that perception of GM and you know we've we've all heard it over the you know the last 10 years or more than 10 years are we beyond that in the cotton industry the view of gm being this worrisome thing that consumers have is it's it's i mean it's you know i've read that the, you know we're talking just about all the cotton in australia now is grown as gm cotton is it a that perception thing there anymore i think i think we're over it 
uh, as growers, we're textedly over it. We've seen the real uh, and measurable benefits that have come from this technology. Um, you know, we've got a natural fibre that is competing on a world market with synthetic oil-based fibres. Uh, the consumer is still increasing its percentage of oil-based synthetic fibre in, in terms of consumption over all of the natural uh, wool, cotton, hemp, whatever, which again is a bit extraordinary to me in this in this time when we've got all the benefits that, that GM crop has provided that I've just gone through as well. That story is, is clearly not out there yet in uh, consumerville, but it's something that we really should be promoting more. I cannot see in today's world where we're worried about carbon and, and our uh, footprint on the planet, why we are not consuming more or starting a trend at least where natural fibres are turning around and, and suddenly being consumed more than a synthetic fibre that comes from an oil-based product. Just to emphasise one point, just a, a fun fact, there's an ag pilot I spoke to recently who's, who's you know, been in the industry a long time and, and he remembers the, the pre-Ingard days of spraying up to 22 times in a season of growing cotton. Now that, that's some you know, fairly heavy synthetic insecticides. Um, now might spray three to four times, Andrew. You know, and and for generally, well, not 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 the heavy stuff too. You know, and this is this is for you know lighter pest pressure. That is a huge good news story for the impact that the cotton has on the environment now compared to twenty years ago, and and that's because of the technological advancements of GMO. So on that point, Andrew, that advancement has to bring an economic benefit for you as well. I mean, you're talking about how the little chemical use. Can you sort of quantify that at all? Oh, look, because of the variability of inputs, you know, that we've still got to uh, work with, the variability in pricing, the variability of Mother Nature in general in terms of our yields, it's, it's really hard to quantify that precisely. Yes, there's been a financial benefit. The biggest benefit to us is that, you know, as Ben said, 22 sprays is just, that's not sustainable. If we were still in that environment today, I don't think the industry would be, would be hit, really. So what the benefit really is, is it's provided a social licence and an opportunity uh, for the industry to continue to advance. But it's also allowed focus to be applied to the crop elsewhere. So when I say we've picked up, we've done a lot of efficiency work in terms of our fertilisers and our water, our agronomists probably spend more time today understanding the real detail of the plant. How is it growing? What, how is it growing differently this week versus last week and why? What can we do about that? That's probably driven us faster towards, um, along with the genetics that's being provided by our um, breeding industry and the research groups, it's driven us to the point where, like I said, we are, I think we're something like double the world's average yields in Australia and, and triple the, the water use efficiency or, or along those lines. It Name me one other commodity or industry even that is even close to the able to talk about those advances. Yes, there's probably a financial one as well, but I guess those things are the things that we're probably most proud of. And it becomes a case then of, of getting the message out to consumers about that. I mean, you, you look at the wool industry and the sorts of issues that it has in relation to mulesing and the, the, the sorts of campaigns that it's had to embark on. We don't sort of see that from, from cotton. If I could come in, I mean, 
Andrew's done a really good job of explaining the benefits. I, I, in a world where we are looking for renewable, sustainable systems, I mean, you, you know, there's a lot of myth around cotton, which unfortunately no one's really doing very much to, to, to bust those myths. And, you know, for example, the, the average water use across Australia is around six, six, six and a half megalitres per hectare when you take the whole cotton crop into consideration um, nationally. Cotton is only grown when there's water available, i.e. if you have big rain years and the dams are full, people can plant cotton. When there's not much water in the dams, because we've gone through an El Nino phase, people don't plant the cotton. That's in stark contrast to something like a, a tree crop, which when you put it in the ground, it requires its water use for the next 10, 15, 20 years. It naturally sequesters a high amount of carbon. It's a, it's a, it's a woody, fibrous crop, so it adds organic carbon into the soil as it's, as it's reincorporated. There's some other benefits as well, which probably aren't thought about so much in terms of, you know, it's an excellent option for growers to clean up weedy paddocks because of the technology in the crop being Roundup ready, i.e. tolerant to the use of glyphosate. That allows growers to put a crop of cotton in following other crops that they rotate with and have a broad spectrum herbicide that, that they can clean up those weeds with. And that prevents, you know, potentially more aggressive cultivation passes, which can add to soil erosion, etc. So, yeah, it, it works really well in a number of systems and also has, I think, definitely because of the, the fact that it is a GMO crop, it becomes a highly regulated industry and that, that's through the regulation bodies. Because of that, there, there's always a, um, a very tight lens on, on how cotton farmers are operating and, and from that comes a real appetite to learn and to get better and to get more efficient in some ways, just to be able to comply with the regulation that goes around, you know, which which is very unique and and, and it's seen in you know in, in other areas of the agricultural sector to that extent. So, Andrew, on on the issue of water use, can you run us through? You know, you talked about dry land and, and irrigated crops before. You know, how do you manage water? Your whether you can tell your water use on various properties. How, how do you how do you manage water and and then that that fluctuation of planting crops when there is water and not planting crops when there isn't water? It's a really good question and it requires probably a little bit of a deeper understanding of how the water is allocated, firstly typhoon and then allocated in the Australian systems. And they vary, you know, valley to valley. But in general, there's effectively there's two different types of water. One is highly reliable. So outside of stock and domestic and critical use needs, the first water allocated to the High security or high reliable entitlements. That, that's that's the first um, consumptive use that's actually allocated. Highly reliable, close to one hundred percent. So every year you know you're going to have that water. The rest of the water entitlements um, used in agriculture are much more variable and, and are allocated on a more annual basis and maybe anywhere from thirty percent or twenty percent to seventy percent reliable that it's going to be there each year. That really, to me, it's, it's, it's very clever in many ways. The highly reliable water is more valuable and it should go to the highest end use, which is more generally for growing permanent crops, as mentioned before, things like almonds, mandarin, citrus, you know, apples, pears, whatever. The water that is more variable in when it's going to actually be allocated to you is the water that should be consumed for annual crops, where when it's not available, you can grow it on, on more of a, just a dry land basis or a one irrigation basis. 
or when it's highly reliable um, uh, or available, you can grow uh, fully irrigated crops. I think that's where the industry's probably learned so much of how to be as efficient as it can be around water entitlements over the years is that there are years where you have to try and get by with one irrigation instead of five or six or two irrigations instead of five or six. And growers have tried different varieties, different configurations of uh, the rows that they put the crop in on, manage the crop in different ways. And in doing all of that, they've learned uh, a lot of lessons in terms of how to do that more constantly and consistently before the next drought turns up or whatever. So I think it's a great system. It, it, it ensures that that highly, highly reliable water, it's too expensive to grow cotton with. We don't grow cotton with highly reliable water. It all gravitates through to the, the permanent crops and the crops that need it uh, no matter what. And that brings about the issue of sustainability as we talked about before, is a changing climate, droughts, potentially longer droughts. The industry really has to look at how does it counter that and how does it manage that? You know, that's be, be fairly well high up in the industry's thinking, I would have presumed. Look, absolutely. And again, I just sort of refer back to, um, you know, so we've got, we've now got sort of four or five farms, five farms, I think it is, that um, have got all sorts of accreditations attached to them. We've got the, the industry, uh, my best management practice, um, accreditation, which flows immediately through to the Better Cotton Initiative, which is a worldwide um, uh, certification supported by a group put together by the uh, World Wildlife Fund. We have uh, five farms that have been good earth cotton accredited, so they're carbon neutral um, farms. And a lot of that's just been done because of the way they're operated and have been operated over time. It's not something we, we've sort of necessarily gone out and tried to create or, or get to. There's certain things that we've had to do to achieve those certifications. But in, a, in many circumstances, the vast majority of those certification requirements uh, have been practices that have been, been carried uh, carried through over a long period of time. And certainly water is one of those, as I mentioned, fertiliser, Life is most likely going to get tougher for us all, given what the experts and researchers are suggesting is going to be more variable and volatile climate going forward. The other really intriguing thing and good thing about cotton in particular is its growth. It doesn't have one point in time where it sets its yield. It does that over the course of time. And so if it's affected at any one point in time and then rainfall or water turns up later, it can pick up on that. Corn crops or sorghum crops or wheat crops or, or other crops, they have a very defined period in which they must flower, set their um, uh, set their grains and, and, and then mature. Whereas the cotton crop is, is very indeterminate in that regard. And, and so wrap all those things up. It's I guess why it gets a bit of a bad name in terms of um, how much water it consumes. It's not actually, in my mind, how much water it consumes on a per hectare basis or a per a dollar return basis. It's because it is the most financially rewarding and highly efficient broadacre irrigated crop that most of the consumptive water used in Australia, where, it, where possible, goes to cotton production because of the fact that it's the highest returning unit per megalitre of production crop that we can grow. And we've proved that time and time again 
versus just about any other broadacre crop that you could uh, you could know. So that issue of a changing climate and growing where you can grow, I'll ask you, Ben. We talked about the main growing regions in Australia. Is that going to change? Where we you know, Andrew's exploring the Northern Territory now. Are you we're going to see any other areas that are going to say you know in the next five ten years we're going to start growing cotton that we don't even think about at the moment. Yeah, I think it really is Northern uh, Australia. So. You know, this year there's probably about 20,000 hectares or so growing across northern Australia and that the western border, the western fringe of that would be the, the Ord River irrigation system in Kununurra there um, and predominantly Northern Territory and some up in the Gulf and far north Queensland over towards the Cape. So I, I don't see cotton going beyond that area in the next five to ten years. Um, there's plenty of effort being made at the moment you know, to, to really establish the industry or industries in, in that region. You, you know, the, if an El Nino does set in for a couple of years, you, you would expect to see um, more interest in the north because of, you know, the more reliable rainfall. Like nine, 95% of, of cotton in the Northern Territory is actually grown on rain. So there's a there's very, there's very small amount of irrigation there. So, so there was a push, however big it was, to come further south to southern New South Wales, northern Victoria, but is that is that a case of before right back at the start of this conversation, Andrew? You talked about the cost of land, return on investment, and then we get back into the whole issue of water availability too, particularly in those those parts of the world. Are we seeing obstacles thrown up there? Andrew will know this better than I will, but the early thought around cotton is it is very much a temperature dependent crop, and then I, I think as, as as learning improved. Realise it was as much about solar radiation as it was about warmth, um, and then you look at areas like you know the, the Riverina, Griffith, Hilston. They have an abundance of sunlight, um, which, which allowed some very good crops, which hitherto people didn't think that they would yield the way they did. Um, and the, the, you know the varieties obviously then catch up and um, and and they just that creep. I, th- I think it's right down to the Victorian border now where where cotton's grown. Um, whereas that was sort of seen as the very deep south at one point, you know, it's it, it really the centre of the cotton, the cotton map now. Um, that sort of middle of New South Wales. But I think just adding in there, Ben, one of the greatest things that the cotton industry did right back when Ben was describing its infancy uh, back in the 50s, 60s, was they set up a research component to the industry. I think it was called the Australian Cotton Growers Research Association originally, and, and one of the main things that the pioneers did was to set in train, they brought varieties out from America, effectively, to, to first start growing in Australia. They recognised that they probably weren't the best adapted to the Australian conditions, so they set a breeding program up back in the late 60s. That breeding program and the scientists associated with it, I understand, have delivered something like 3% yield gain per annum over the every year over the course of time. So that's extraordinary. But the other thing that's come about is as new varieties are introduced with different qualities associated with them, it allows them to move into different regions. And that's what really kicked off the the, the MIA, the Murrabidgee um, uh, Riverina region. A new family of varieties came along, the Seventy family, that allowed a cotton to extend more north, south, east and west than where it had never gone. So we, we keep waiting for the glass ceiling to be hit in terms of uh, what can be done with breeding um, within Australia. Uh, and we keep thinking we're about to hit it, and we never seem to. And I understand there's more varieties coming out again soon that are better again. So you never say never, 
in terms of about just how far the crop might be able um, to expand. And it's certainly in regions that I never would have thought it to be in uh, 10 years ago um, where it is today, and it's doing ex- extraordinarily well. I'll go to you, Ben. Um, what, what are we going to see in the next 10 years? What sort of advances? You know, what, what's, what's Bay going to come up with? And, and feel free to give out any company secrets if you, if you feel like it, but uh, you know, what, what sort of innovations are we going to see? Yeah, come on, Ben. I'll refer to I'll refer to my little book here. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty exciting actually. I mean, we're we're in the early days of launching ExtendFlex cotton system at the moment. Um, there'll be fifty thousand hectares grown predominantly in the in the northern New South Wales and southern Queensland regions um, this year. So the ExtendFlex is a continuation onto the Roundup ReadyFlex system. So obviously, as I uh, mentioned, Roundup ReadyFlex is enabled to be able you, you, enables you to spray. The cotton with Roundup. Um, the ExtendFlex system extends that to include glyphosate and dicamba. Um, so instead of trying to come up with new modes of action, we're learning how to, or have learned how to, um, incorporate traditional or older modes of action into a different system. And what that does is that that protects glyphosate, which is you know a very valuable chemical to farmers, but it also allows the farmers more tools in their toolbox to challenge the resistance that can build up and and therefore rely you know from overuse of glyphosate so certain weeds like feather top roads or um flea bane or tridex daisy things like that which are resistant or or the glyphosate doesn't work on have very good efficacy via via glyphosate or dicamba or both you know part of that has has been bayer have produced a technology called vapor grip which effectively locks up the, the the dicamber acid and prevents non-volatile drift so that's you know another leap forward in in, in technology and, and crop safety going on from there um we're bulgard three which is the you know the, the three effectively three strains of the naturally occurring proteins that are that, that are transgenically included in, into the cotton in approximately 10 years there'll be a release of bulgard four so we're constantly evolving to keep ahead of, of, of where resistance might go. So I think they're pretty exciting technologies which are being released and, and are in the pipeline to be released to make sure that, you know, we stay on the front foot as an industry. Yeah, and you only do that sort of thing if you've got confidence in the industry of, of the future. So that's um, it's good to hear. Andrew, what's the one big thing that you, you expect to see in the next 10 years in the cotton industry? Oh, good question, Ed. Um, I certainly see, I'm a, I'm a real believer in the expansion in Northern Australia. So I think, you know, just how big that can be and how fast that can grow, I'm not sure, but I think there'll be definite expansion in that area. Um, I just wanted to just, you know, again, refer back to the research. Um, every cotton grower puts a levy in, has been doing that since the very first day cotton was grown here. Um, that goes to research. It is research that the cotton industry itself directs. So there's panels of growers that direct where that research needs to go. And so it's very effective and it's very targeted. What that research unearths in the next 10 years, I can't be 100% sure about, but I'm sure it will be substantial. It's usually adopted very uh, readily by growers. So there'll be advances there. The obvious thing is, I'm sure, we'll be led down the carbon neutrality path as, as well. We've already made some advances uh, down that pathway ourselves. 
And I think there'll be more and more of that. And uh, at some point down the track, again, there'll be social biases. If we're not carbon neutral in our farming systems, no matter what they are, we won't be well accepted by uh, society today. And I'm sure there'll be a lot of uh, a lot of work done in that regard. And I'm convinced we will get there. We'll certainly get to carbon neutrality um, well before of, of most government targets, I believe. That's a great note to finish on. Andrew, thanks for telling us about your operation. Really interesting. And, and, and thanks for joining us. No, pleasure, Ed. Good, thank you. And Ben, same to you. Thanks for telling us uh, about the research sides of things and, and the Bayer side of things. My pleasure. Thank you. And a special thank you to our audience for listening. Make sure you tell your friends and colleagues about our podcast and, and keep an eye out for future episodes as we tackle the issue of better agriculture. We'll catch you then. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Better Agriculture, brought to you by Bayer Crop Science Australia. Listen to our other episodes to meet more of the Bayer Crop Science team and hear about their groundbreaking work on solutions for Australian agriculture.